The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm super excited to be back for the second week in a row after not having hosted for a while. So I hope you're happy to hear me on your, uh, wherever, wherever you're listening. I was going to say on your radio, but probably more like your computer or maybe your iPhone. Um, so it's a beautiful sunny day here in Massachusetts. And of course, we're getting a snowstorm tomorrow. And for whatever reason, that made me think about what's coming up for everyone. They're all in this sort of waiting period, which can be sometimes a really lovely time. And then the decisions come in, which can be a less lovely time or can make things even better. So um, here's hoping that things are get even better when those decisions come in. And we also have some segments planned in some upcoming shows uh, to help you kind of get through that process of getting your decisions and finding out where you've been accepted, maybe where you've been denied, where you've been waitlisted and, and what to do with those. Um, Today, we're going to be doing a lot of your questions, and we're going to get to those in just a bit. But before we do that, um, a few weeks ago, we did an overview of the California University system. And actually, this is something we're going to be doing from time to time in, in an effort to try and take a closer look at a lot of states' uh, school systems or university systems. And this week, we're going to take a closer look at New York State and their SUNY schools. Uh, and here to help me with that is my colleague, Lisa Albro, who is a former Goucher admissions officer. And perhaps for the purposes of today's conversation, more importantly, she's former director of admissions or college counseling, excuse me, at Xavier High School in Manhattan, where I would guess, Lisa, you sent lots of kids to New York State schools. <laughs> yes, many. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or at least they apply to lots of New York State schools. Yes. Um, so thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Great. Well, um, before we dig too deeply into SUNYs, I did want to make mention of the fact that uh, on the one hand, I was saying to Lisa before we got uh, came on air that I look forward to actually learning a little bit more about some of the SUNY schools. Being here in Massachusetts, I don't necessarily have a ton of kids applying to SUNY schools. And yet, ironically, I do have lots of kids applying to and I myself attended probably one of the best known of the state university uh, schools, and that's Cornell. And you don't always think about it as a SUNY school, but in fact, there are a number of um, schools at Cornell. There are seven undergraduate schools, um, and a number of those are land-grant institutions, which means that technically they are state schools. Uh, and um, But for the purposes of today, we're not really going to be digging into Cornell at all. Um, we will talk about that on other shows. 
shows. Um, today, we're going to really be just looking at the primary SUNY system. And I think probably the best way to get us started, Lisa, would be, can you give us kind of a general overview of the SUNY system? Absolutely. Well, it's, a, as you said, public university with many, many, when I say many, many, I mean tons of campuses all over <laughs> the state of New York. Uh, some are called university centers and doctoral degree granting institutions, and I'll break down which ones those are. Some are called university colleges. Then there are a whole bunch of colleges of technology and many, many community colleges. So all of those, total 64, and that includes Cornell, uh, yep. which I won't talk about. Uh, so <laughs> then one of the best things I guess I can tell you about SUNY to start is that tuition for in-state students is so nice. It's 6470. Wow. 6470 yeah. for in-state. And for out-of-state, it's really not all that bad either. It's 16320 for it. a year. So basically now, yeah, another 10 grand for mm-hmm. out-of-state. Yes. Okay. Correct. Sorry. Correct. Now, that doesn't include room and board, we know. But if you think about the value right there, you're talking tremendous value, and you're talking about public institutions that have so many resources and opportunities and majors galore. Uh, you, you really can't go wrong. When you're a New York State student, you really can't go wrong with, with a SUNY school, but also I think from a lot of the surrounding states. And, and you did mention my connection with the, the Manhattan students going to SUNYs, but I also worked in, in a high school in New Jersey, and I had a good number of students who were very interested in the SUNY schools as well, uh, in particular a few campuses that I'll mention a little bit. So there, there is value all across the board there. Got um, it. And lots of options, uh, which yeah. is what's so exciting. I mean, 64 schools, there's something for everyone there. Um, Absolutely. And, right, and I would guess the community colleges are even significantly cheaper than what you mentioned. So for those families maybe looking to, um, you know, maybe not to do the four-year option or not mm-hmm. to live on campus, that's always something um, to consider. Uh, so I guess, you know, let's, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the more um, well-known campuses, and I don't know if I really want to use the words more common to attend, but certainly the ones that seem to attract the most attention. Sure. Sure. When, when I have students talking about SUNYs, usually the first ones that come to mind are Albany, Binghamton, Stony Brook, uh, New Paltz sometimes. Those are some of the big four that I usually hear in, in, in my neck of the woods at least and, mm-hmm. and from the groups of students I used to work with. Um, but let me break it down a little bit too. So the university centers, Albany and Binghamton and Stony Brook all fall under that title. So those are places that also have doctoral degree programs out there. So you've got the mix of undergrads and grads at the universities. And University of Buffalo is also another one to consider. Um, Albany is a pretty good size. It's about 13,000 undergrads. Lots of majors. I think it's over 100 majors in arts and sciences. But the one that always comes to mind for me with Albany is business. Uh, So many students seek Albany, in particular for the business programs. Uh, It's it's one that is... uh, AACSB, I always have to say that slowly, the AACSB dual accreditation in business administration and accounting, and there aren't a lot of programs that have that dual accreditation, so a lot of students do seek that that out for, uh, for Albany. Gotcha. But also, it's the state capital, and there's a lot going on in government, and a lot of great internship opportunities for students who are interested in, in those areas, too. 
Right. And, you know, I think just very quickly, sorry to interrupt because I know you're, mm-hmm. we have a lot to try and cover. Mm-hmm. One point that I do want to make to our listeners is we're highlighting a couple of the programs at each at these campuses that people tend to be drawn to. But don't miss the fact that Lisa said they have more than 100 different majors. So it isn't what I don't want people to walk away from is, well, if you want business, Albany is where you go. But if you want something else, then you got to look elsewhere. Right. That's not what we're saying. Exactly, we're just saying exactly. they have a couple of programs that are particularly um, good to note, I guess, for Albany. That's a great way to put it because there are quite a few others that do have very strong business programs. So, yep, you're right. Um, Binghamton in particular. Binghamton is another one. And that's one when you think, I guess, flagship university, uh, which of the SUNYs is usually the most selective, that tends to be Binghamton. Um, Sometimes Geneseo, which is one of the university colleges, is is just right alongside Binghamton with selectivity. But I would say Binghamton is is, is usually consistently more selective. Um, Although, I would see quite a difference between out-of-state students and in-state students when it came to the selectivity. I very often saw students from out-of-state having a little bit easier time of of getting Mm -hmm. into Binghamton than students from in-state. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, let's, and I guess for our listeners' sake, probably we shouldn't forget the fact, right, that we're looking at families from out of state paying 10,000 more in tuition than those from in state. And if you're not getting your f- enough funding from your state, that can be something that happens is um, that those out-of-state candidates start to look a little bit more attractive. Um, we could probably spend a whole show talking about the nuances of that, so let's not. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But a little bit more quickly about Binghamton. It's actually considered one of the top 50 public universities. It's called a public Ivy by some, um, mid-sized. But it also, within the university, there are six schools uh, you know, there's arts and sciences, uh, the, you know, engineering programs, engineering school. There's, there are a lot of different schools within the university, and there's a living, learning, academic community environment that makes a larger school feel less large. Does no. that make sense? It's a beautiful campus. No, it does make sense. In mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. upstate and, New York. Yep. And on a side yeah. note, I would say that anyone I've ever met who's gone to Binghamton, and I'm talking people who are 20 and 30 years out, of school, maybe even more. They're some of the proudest alums I've ever met. I, I can't even explain how, how happy they are to talk about Binghamton and to tell you they went there. And so yeah. it, it's a place that must be really doing something right to have people so happy and so proud to come out of there. Excellent. Yeah. So what are, what are some other campuses that your kids were yeah. interested in? Yeah. Okay. So Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo, and this is not to be confused with Buffalo State because there is also Buffalo State underneath the SUNY umbrella. This is University at Buffalo, which is a very large, it's probably the largest, I do believe it is, it's about 20,000 undergrads. Uh, it's one of the leading public research universities out there. Um, and it's more of an urban campus uh, right in Buffalo. That is a draw if people are willing to go north and be cold if they're coming from yeah. the tri-state it's area. It's definitely chilly. <laughs> I've been. But tr- tremendous research opportunities. Um, Stony Brook, that's another big one that we, we hear about. Uh, about 17,000 students, uh, North Shore of Long Island, so very nice setting, uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, place to be. Uh, really strong sciences, research. There's a nationally recognized marine science program, and there are more than 200 majors at Stony Brook. 
So wow, that's lots a lot of choices. Uh, yeah. Combined medical degree is there. So if you're talking about BAMD programs, Stony Brook is is a place uh, some students would look. Um, maybe not getting as much press because it's smaller, but it it does draw a very uh, specialized group of students, SUNY Polytech. Uh, There are actually two campuses for SUNY Polytech, and these are still under the university centers and doctoral degree institutions. Uh, There are two campuses, one at Utica and one at Albany. Only about 2,000 undergrads total, but the Albany campus draws a lot of the nanotechnology uh, students, Mm -hmm. and the Utica campus has strengths in business and communications, computer science, big nursing school, and they're also the AACSB accredited uh, with their business at SUNY Polytech. Got it. So okay. I think that's kind of nice to throw in there. Because a lot of people don't think poly, you know, institutes of technology for business, but they're tremendous places for business. So. Yeah, I don't think I really yeah. think about them, so that's good mm-hmm. to know. I will keep that mm-hmm. file that away for my students interested in business. Mm-hmm. And then the university colleges, and there are many, and I won't hit all of them. I'll name them, but I won't give you lots of details about all of them. But there's Rockport, which is about 7,000 students. That's not too far from Rochester. Buffalo State, which I mentioned earlier, not to be confused with the University of Buffalo, about 9,000 students. Um, education and the arts are, are kind of big there. Uh, Cortland, City Cortland is a little smaller, about 6,000 Students, um, big student-faculty collaboration uh, happening at Cortland. A lot of that, uh, you know, one-on-one faculty-student, and the focus is very heavily on the undergraduates because that's the population there. Um, SUNY Fredonia, about a little under 5,000, about 4,500 students. Uh, liberal arts is the big focus there, but they also have a school of music at Fredonia and is also known for technology. I mentioned Geneseo a little bit earlier as one that's kind of, tough to get into, sort of like Binghamton, um, pretty selective, uh, about five and a half, almost 6,000 students, liberal arts institution. Uh, Geneseo likes to see itself as a direct competitor with schools like in the area, Colgate, Hamilton, Vassar, Rochester, even Cornell, they consider themselves kind of competition. So mm-hmm. something to bear in mind, uh, very strong honors college, always had a lot of students looking to go to Geneseo in particular for the honors college there. Um, New Paltz. Yep. Oh yeah, New Paltz. We know New Paltz because we we know uh, (laughs) we have an annual retreat right near the New Paltz campus. So, um, so quickly tell us about New Paltz, and then I want to talk a little bit about admission as we um, we get to the final minutes of our segment. You bet. You bet. New Paltz is about six thousand students. Uh, When I think New Paltz, I think many majors, of course, but the arts are big there, Uh, and I think because the community and the town of New Paltz and the area of New Paltz is very there's a lot of, you know, galleries and, and artistic opportunities and playhouses and things like that. Um, and uh, quickly, before we leap, uh, one other campus that is very well known for the arts is SUNY Purchase. I didn't want to yes. leave that out, even though we, we have many to talk about and, and not enough time. Uh, but I can't leave out Purchase because there are three conservatories on the SUNY Purchase campus for dance, for music, and for theater arts. Yeah, and I used to, I, re- I remember seeing some um, some acting people, I, when I used to watch soap operas, people who had gone to SUNY Purchase. It's definitely a, uh, I always think of it as a place where actors go, but, you know, lots of arts happening there. So that's exciting. <laughs> yes, All right, so, 
So let's talk a little bit about admission requirements in terms of what are people, what are each of these campuses? So they're all different, right? They're all different in terms mm-hmm. of their selectivity. What can you recommend for people who are trying to figure out where they might be competitive? Mm-hmm. Well, there, every campus has its own sort of, you know, middle 50% SAT scores or ACT scores or a range of GPAs. And there's this great chart that SUNY has put together. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, It's right on their website. I can give you the address. It's www.suny.edu slash attend. And on that chart, you can see it all spelled out. What's the enrollment? What are the mid-range GPA or uh, SATs, uh, ACTs, and GPAs? And percentage, not percentage accepted, but what, it, what do they offer in terms of programming? And do they have early decision, early action? So definitely, let's talk about Binghamton in particular, since that's when we talked about being very selective. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're right now listing their mid-50%, their SAT scores, actually not even, yes, mid-50%, sorry, uh, between 1230 and 1380. Their mid-50% ACTs. 27 to 31, and their mid, their GPA range, they're saying, uh, is 92 to 97. Got it. So okay. That's pretty high. So that's yeah, that's example. definitely pretty high. Absolutely. And I think um, it's suny.edu slash attend. And I think for all of our listeners interested in the SUNY system, uh, that's a really important um, place to go. Very quickly, um, in the final seconds, any, um, do they break it down in that chart um, if there are different criteria for out-of-state or is it really just this is what they're looking for and it's probably not going to be tougher from out-of-state than it is from in-state? That's right. They don't break it down in state versus out of state on this chart. No. Got it. Okay. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Don't go away. Uh, We are going to be answering your questions in the next segment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories 
the gossip and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Everybody, uh, we're back. Before the break, I promised that we were going to be answering your questions, and so here we are. We're going to do just that. And uh, I am joined by my colleague and college finance expert, Kathy Ruby, who just so happens to be the former dean of student financial aid at St. Olaf's College, which is why she's an expert. Uh, all right, Kathy, you have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Why yeah. don't we switch it up, and uh, we'll start with a question that's related to admissions. All right. Sounds good. So I will ask you your first question. So this comes from Janet, um, and she says, My daughter was deferred from Penn in early action. She had strong scores, 1490 SAT, 4.27 GPA, strong leadership, service, activities, and amazing essays. 770 on the lit subject test, but blew the U.S. history subject test with a 590 because she's a full IB student and didn't take AP U.S. history and didn't realize she needed to prepare more thoroughly. Um, So, can one subject test defer you? Does she have a chance if she improves that score? She's also a legacy through her grandmother. So, insight would be helpful, she says. So, okay. Well, I'm going to give you what insight I can. What I will say to Janet and to all of our listeners is that there are a lot of factors here that we, you feel like, you might feel like we know enough, but really we know so little um, that I can just give some perspective. Um, The things that we don't know. Um, I haven't seen her transcript, so I don't know what IB courses she took. I don't know what she took at the higher level. I don't know what she took at the standard level. I don't know what she applied for as a major. I don't know which school of Penn she applied to. I have no idea where she goes to high school. I have no idea who from her school also applied and what their applications look like. I don't know what she wrote her essay about. I don't know what her recommendation writers wrote about. Uh, that's just off the top of my head, the things I don't know. Um, and then let's look at what I do know. Well, I know she got a 1490, but I have no idea what the breakdown is. So that could mean she got a 790 on the math and a Mm -hmm. 600 on the verbal stuff. Um, it could be more evenly split than that. I'll say that a 1490 in on the surface sounds good. Um, I would say that, you know, for me, a bare minimum of a 700 on each section of the SAT, um, for a place like Penn or a similarly selective school, and really you're looking for more of like a 750 or above. Um, so it sounds like she's close, but maybe, you know, again, I don't know what the breakdown is, so that's difficult to say. Um, that U.S. history subject test, not a great score, um, especially for Penn. Uh, does th- is that the one reason? Does one test score mean you automatically get deferred? Absolutely not. But mm-hmm. at this selectivity level, it's all the little things adding up to a very competitive application. So could I point to that as a weakness? Certainly I could. Could I say that's the only, you know, you're not really, the thing is, though, 
in this process, and we've done lots and lots of shows about this, um, and in fact, um, we did a great show this summer uh, where we talked a lot about how do you evaluate your chances for an Ivy or a similar, similarly selective school, where we talked a lot about how do you take an honest look at your accomplishments. And so, you know, what I would say is not that she got deferred because she had a weaker test score, but I don't know all of the other factors, and so I can't really say, but what I can say is that that's not a a terribly competitive score. Raising that score might help. It might not. Um, Being a legacy in the early, and it's a really an early decision pool. I know that Janet said early action. I'm sure she meant decision. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a binding program. So anyway, um, sure, maybe improving that AP U.S. History subject test score, the U.S. History subject test score could help. Um, I'm not sure that it will do the trick necessarily. Um, Mm-hmm. And I and you know I guess there's uh, you know she might have a chance for being admitted in the regular decision pool if she does improve that score. But I you know it so rarely comes down to one thing. I would almost say it never does. Mm-hmm. That I don't I don't know that improving that one score is necessarily going to make a big difference. But I don't know if I actually added anything to that or really confused the situation more. But there no, I you think go. You, I actually think you you did. I think okay. me, you clarified it. All right. Well, that's good. And hey, it's we're a party of two right now, so that's you right. feel more clarified. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe our listeners do too. Uh, okay, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. This comes to us from AC, who asks, "What, if any, legislative or executive changes to financial aid, scholarship, student loan rules, regulations do you anticipate in the next four years?" Ooh, ooh, ooh interesting politics. Yes. <laughs> We're going to try not to be controversial, but um, well, so that's that's a great question, and and honestly, some of the changes that we might see might have nothing to do with the new administration, but just things that might have been chugging along anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but some might have things to do with the new administration. So um, now I'm I don't have a crystal ball, and these are just obviously our um, opinions about what what things might be on the table, what things might be looked at. And some of the information I've gotten, I've gotten from a presentation done by American Student Assistance, who is an advocacy group um, located in Boston. And they do a lot of work um, with students and borrowing. And um, so they, they've got a legislative person who, who offers some great insights. So the general themes around what we think might happen will will revolve around simplification of things. Um, so uh, one of the things might be trying to simplify all the different, you know, grant programs and student loan programs into one of each. Um, or possibly there's been some talk of there are about, you know, four or five different income-driven repayment plans and trying to fold those into one plan. Um, so that's one thing that's been talked about. Um, the other might have to do with containing costs, so one of the programs that's kind of um, on the edge of coming to fruition is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and that's the program where if you make 120 payments, as in mm-hmm. 10 years of payments, and you're uh, working for a nonprofit and you're in, a, in an income-driven repayment plan, after you make those 120 payments, the government will forgive the rest of your loans which is Got quite it. a deal. And so yeah. that program, yeah, that program was created in October of 2017, so, or sorry, 2007. So 
nobody's had anything forgiven yet. And there's some concerns, some major concerns about how much that's going to cost um, right. and whether the government has accurately estimated that. So there could be some limits placed on that. Um, and then uh, the last piece is, is, and this isn't surprising, is there may be less regulation. So um, there are some regulations that are in place that are called gainful employment rules that regulate um, for-profit colleges and other kinds of certificate programs where it leads to a career. And those programs are required to provide some information to students and families about their outcomes and their graduation rates, but they're also required to adhere to some debt-to-income ratios among their graduates. And there's Mm -hmm. a question about whether those regulations will be enforced. They're pretty new, um, and so it hasn't been long since they were put in place, and they may not be enforced. Got it. So, so buyer beware, and yes, the advice exactly. we always, always, always give people is please just don't take on so much debt thinking, oh, well, eventually I'll earn enough to pay it off. Um, is that really, really how you want to start your adult life, just completely underwater, and maybe that way for many, many years? That just exactly. seems like a bad idea. But Be, be an informed w- consumer. Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay. All right. What so... For you, we have from Sharmila, how important is it to take both the SAT and the ACT? I think it is we not get important. pretty regularly. <laughs> we do. We do. I think there is a thing in college admissions, this idea that the more you do somehow, the better. And so now that more people are aware that you can either do the SAT or the ACT, so somehow now it's becoming, well, maybe it would be even better if I did both. And I'm here to tell you, no, stop, don't do it. It is not important to take both. What is important is to figure out which is the best test for the student and then focus on that test. So you're not going to suddenly get, you know, lots of extra points for taking both tests, Um, especially, you know, there's really... The, at the colleges, the, they want you to achieve a certain test score, and then they are moving on. So just because you're <laughs> turning in lots of great test scores, it's still that one component of the process. So once you've hit the, what these schools are basically looking for, move on. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about this is what I would recommend is many test prep companies out there will offer a free diagnostic so that a student can do a free mm-hmm. SAT and a free ACT through the test prep organization to determine which is the best test. Um, two companies that we work with very regularly and really love, Arbor Bridge and Revolution Prep, both do this. Mm-hmm. Do that, then figure out which one to focus on and then move on. Great. Good. All right. All right. So Edison asks us, what are the interest rates on federal student loans and are they fixed? All right. So the answer is yes, they are fixed, but the rates change every year, uh, but the fixed rates change every year. So your rate will be fixed, but what your rate is will depend on when you borrowed your loan. So essentially the government sets the rate on July 1st for loans borrowed in the upcoming year. So on July 1st of this year, they'll set the rate for loans that are borrowed between July 1st of 2017 and June 30th of 2018. And then the next year, they'll do it again. So when you go to college, over the course of four years, you could have four different interest rates, but they'll all be fixed. So they won't change over the life of your loan. Um, 
So currently, no arm student loans, right? <laughs> right. And so when okay. we're talking, yeah, student loans and parent, there's a federal parent loan as well. So the way they set the rate, it's tied to a 10-year treasury note. That this, and I can't, I'm not even going to get into the technicalities of that, but plus an index. So um, currently, the uh, federal direct student loan until June 30th, if you borrowed a loan between now and June 30th, uh, the loan, the interest rate is 3.76%. Last year it was 4.29. The year before that it was 4.66, and that's for undergraduate students. Um, graduate students, their interest rate on the unsubsidized direct loan this year is 5.31. Um, and then there is a parent loan, uh, or the PLUS loan, which is available to both parents and to graduate students, and that current interest rate is 6.31%. So Got it. All right. That's All right. good information there. All, All right. right. My turn. I know. I have to keep remembering this. Okay. <laughs> Anapama. I hope I said that right. What is the one key thing that selective colleges look at? Ha. This idea that there is a magic bullet. There is no one key thing. Um, what I would recommend is kind of going back through the archives and listening to, we've done a number of shows about um, more selective schools and all the different things that they consider and look at. I would again point to that um, show that we did on July 13th of mm-hmm. 2016 where we talked about evaluating your chances at the more selective levels and we kind of covered all of those areas that they're focusing on. Um, we're also going to be doing shows, future shows, um, where we talk a little bit about that. But there is no one key thing. Uh, it's a lot about doing well in the classroom, um, challenging yourself in the classroom, doing interesting things outside of the classroom, doing well on those standardized tests, having good recommendation letters, writing good essays, you know, <laughs> lots of stuff. The usual. <laughs> the usual. Lots of stuff. Lots the of stuff. Person. Yes. All right. Let me, um, let me ask you one more question before, um, well, we may have room for one more for me too, but this one comes from Jane who asks um, for some pointers on appealing financial aid decisions. Ah, that's a pretty common question this time of year, but I'm actually going to pass the buck on this because we've recently done, and essentially at this time every year, we try to do a show on this topic. So on February 9th, there's a show that we, where we talk about appealing a financial aid decision, which is when you go back to a college based on changes in your financial circumstances or, in, or something financial on the application that you feel wasn't well represented. So that's on mm-hmm. February 9th, if you go back in the, in the history. Um, and then February 23rd, we did a show on negotiating a better merit scholarship. So that has more to do with uh, academic and merit scholarship. So I would just advise Jane to go back and listen to those two segments <clears throat> on the podcast. Perfect. Perfect. And if you want to dig even further back in the archives, as Kathy said, we've done segments on this um, in previous years as well. So um, there's lots of really good information about hopefully getting yourself a little bit more money if you mm-hmm. either your circumstances have changed or you're just trying to get more money. You never yes, know. Absolutely. All right, we have time for one more question for okay. me, Kathy. What do you got? I think this is a quick answer. <clears throat> so okay. um, Irene asks, how important is it to have four years of foreign language in high school? Our language program starts in eighth grade, but Spanish one is not printed on a high school transcript. My son will be applying for a science pre-med major. 
So my advice to all parents and students out there is to stick with all five major subject areas, math, science, English, history, and foreign language, and foreign language, all four years. Um, Mm -hmm. So you ask how important it is. Well, college is about going above and beyond. So um, most high schools don't require four years of a foreign language. But again, college is about going above and beyond. How do you show that you're willing to go above and beyond? Well, you go above and beyond in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's Number one. Number two, colleges really don't like to see students specializing in high school. They prefer to see students broadly educated. Then they can specialize when they get to college. So while I appreciate that he's going to go for something in science pre-med, first of all, he might change his mind. And second of all, um, the colleges are expecting he's going to focus on that when he gets there, not before he gets there or exclusively before he gets there. And by the way, Spanish, very, very useful for a student who ultimately plans to be a doctor mm-hmm. um, because there are so many Spanish speakers in this country. I think, and the third reason I would suggest starting or staying with the Spanish all the way through high school is that most colleges these days have a foreign language requirement in order to graduate. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's way easier to finish that out, you may, by taking four years in high school, you may be able to either test out of that requirement when you get to college, or they may actually just say, oh, you've already got four years, you're fine, that satisfies what we want, versus having to take a much more intensive language course when you're in college, especially if you don't really like it. So my advice, it's important, and I would stick with it. Um, Mm -hmm. If the foreign language is really causing the student so much trouble that they literally can't do as well in their other classes and it's really, really causing problems, that might be a reason to not take it anymore. But I, you know, if it's available, I would stick with it. All right. All right. All right. So what we're going to do right now is we still have lots and lots of questions. So we're going to go to the break and then we're going to come back and we're going to answer more of them. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, 
content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody, we're back. We're answering your questions. We have a lot, so let's get right to it. Kathy, you have another one for me. I do. So David asks, my wife insists that we shouldn't consider the Ivies since they don't offer scholarships. What's your take? Well, David, my take is that uh, you want a happy marriage. You probably should say, you are right, wife. (laughs) We shouldn't. (laughs) Um, Second of all, I would say, obviously, you're not uh, considering the Ivies. Your child is, I would assume, that you're not married and applying to college, although I should probably not make that assumption. Um, I think that the bigger question here is, first of all, your wife is correct, um, sorry, but she's right. They don't offer scholarships. What they offer is financial aid. And in some cases, they're going to offer better financial aid than you might find at other schools. But um, you're only going to get financial aid if you qualify for financial aid. So if you right. feel like, you know, you're going to need money to afford to send your child to an Ivy and you don't think you're going to qualify for financial aid, then I, I kind of feel like your wife, why bother applying if your child does get in and then you can't afford to send him or her or worse, um, you decide to go into extreme debt because who can turn that down? Right, exactly. You know, like I think that's a little foolish and, and um, then you might not want to consider the Ivies, but you know, Kathy, you're the finance expert. Uh, what would you say? I would say I agree with you completely, but I would say, David, make sure that you don't qualify. So what Beth said about um, they do offer more generous financial aid and they're expensive. So you can actually make more money than you might think and still qualify for some assistance there. So don't forget that all colleges are required to have a net price calculator on their website. Um, And you can go to any college's website, search for that, put in your financial information, and then the college will come back and give you a pretty good estimate. Um, As long as you've entered correct information, they'll give you a pretty good estimate, especially at the Ivy level, um, of what your need-based financial aid eligibility might be. And I do want to say, by the way, when you go to Harvard's net price calculator, it's just one that sticks in my mind. It's very simple, easy. It's great. They just ask for income, household size. It's, it's very quick. Um, but when they come up with what they're going to give you, they do call it a scholarship, but it's based on financial need, not right. on academic merit. Right. Exactly. Um, and I guess the only other thing I would say is if you do all of that, 
and you decide that, you know, you want to have your child go ahead and apply anyway, I would really set some parameters for everyone so that you don't lose sight of this very important affordability question when decisions come in. So Mm -hmm. if your child is going to jump through the hoops of applying, because those applications tend to be fairly involved, um, everyone should really be clear that getting in is one thing, paying for it is another. And unless the aid comes through that you need to, for, to afford to send your child there, then um, you should just be prepared to say no. Um, the good news is if your child is in a position to be accepted to an IV, the chances are good that he or she probably will qualify for some really great merit scholarships at other schools. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, so that can be a good thing. All right. Um, I have another one for you, Kathy. Dave asks, when do we have to apply for student and parent loans and what paperwork is required? Oh, that's a great question because right now everybody's getting their financial aid awards and the schools are all telling you what you're eligible for and telling you about these student and parent loans and it, and we get people calling and saying, oh, I need to be doing things right now. And actually, you don't need to actually apply for student and parent loans now. Um, colleges would prefer that you wait until after May 1st. And so essentially, once you've once your student has deposited at a school, then the college will really start communicating with them about what the next step are. Um, And that includes, and when you read through the award packet you've gotten, um, that includes going in and doing the paperwork that's necessary to receive a student loan or a parent loan if that's what you're going to use. So usually the good timing for that is in the June time frame. You know, get through May, maybe get through graduation, (laughs) and then start doing the paperwork. Um, And the paperwork is actually pretty straightforward these days. It's all online, as you can imagine. Um, But for a federal student loan, your student will be instructed to go to the federal government's website, studentloans.gov, and they'll fill out what's called a master promissory note. And the, the good thing is they only have to do this once, and then for the rest of their educational career, that will be on file. Um, and it's a pretty simple, you know, just name, address, a couple references. Um, they'll use their FSA ID to sign in to studentloans.gov. So remember, you use that to do the FAFSA, and now you use it for federal student loan paperwork. Um, the other thing they'll have to do is an entrance counseling session, and I encourage you to have your student do this, not you. Um, and this is where the student goes, and it's, a, it's essentially a, a quiz. Um, they're told about, you know, you're borrowing a student loan, it has to be repaid, and then there are things to understand about the loan. And then the student takes a quiz. Um, once they pass the quiz, the school is notified, and then the school can approve the loan. Um, Got it. That's interesting. I wish they had that when I was going to school. I know. I think they, I don't think, I remember having it when I left school, but not when I went in. (laughs) I don't remember having it when I left either, but maybe I blocked it out. Who knows? Perhaps. Um, And then parents will have similar paperwork. Now, the only reason you might want to, if if you have concerns about your credit, um, then you might be concerned about applying for loans sooner so that you can make alternative plans. But now remember the federal student loans, there's no credit check there, but for a federal parent loan, they do pull your credit and they're checking to make sure you don't have any adverse credit like bankruptcies or judgments or um, significantly late payments in the last five years. Um, And so as long as you know your credit's okay, there really is no reason to apply until after, um, after May 1st. Got it. All right. and, and parents will go to studentloans.gov too. 
check your college's website, and they they will have instructions for how to do all this. So, all right. All right next cool. question for you. Haha. <laughs> Amy says, my daughter just got thirty five on her ACT. Congratulations. Um, should she try to take it again to get a thirty six, or at least another score to help her with the super score? Oh, Amy, Amy, Amy. Uh, it's not a bad question. It just sort of falls in line with what I was saying a little earlier about the more is better, more is better, more is better. 35 out of 36 is a phenomenal score on the ACT. Um, many schools do not super score the ACT. So mm-hmm. unless there's some random super low score on there um, that does not jibe with the rest of the um, score set, which is probably unlikely because you're not going to get a 35 unless you did pretty well in each of the four sections of the ACT, I would Mm -hmm. say move on. A 35 is a very, very good score at any school in the country or abroad. Um, So my advice would be, no, don't take it again. Just leave it. Take a break. Yep. Leave it and take a break. You deserve (laughs) it. Exactly. All right. Melissa asks, um, and this is actually sort of relevant for you, but also for me, uh, can we Mm -hmm. deposit it more than one school? Is it refundable? All right. So I've got the refundable part. It is not refundable. Generally speaking, most colleges will say you're making a non-refundable deposit. Now, the one deposit that sometimes is refundable, okay, actually, let me step back here. What we're talking about is the May 1st enrollment deposit. Um, So that's the deposit that the student makes to essentially signal to the college, I'm coming to you. Um, this is this is where I'm going to go, um, and here's my deposit. Most colleges do require a deposit, but there are a few that don't even require one. They just need you to indicate that you're coming. Um, and enrollment deposits are generally not refundable. Um, there is sometimes colleges will require a housing deposit earlier in the cycle. So if they're a big college and they have an elaborate housing system, they may need a housing deposit sooner. Um, because they they need to get started on figuring out where everyone's going to live. Um, and usually those deposits, well, those deposits should be refundable if they're required prior to May 1st. Um, so there are some rules that govern this that say, you know, you, that students should have until May 1st to make a final decision. But you may be asked to make a refundable deposit prior to May 1st to hold housing, but your enrollment deposit is on May 1st, and that is generally not refundable. How about right. depositing and, at more than one school? Yeah, that's really frowned upon, double depositing. Colleges really don't want you to do that. It is ethically something that we really strongly discourage. Um, you've had a lot of time to be thoughtful about where you're going to go to school. Um, you've had a lot of time to put together the list of schools under consideration. Um, and you are allotted a full month and oftentimes more than that before you have to make your decision. And so for that reason, you should be ready to decide by May 1. Um, mm-hmm. And you should be setting yourself up to decide by May 1. Now, there are, like you just mentioned, maybe you deposited somewhere because if you didn't, you weren't going to be guaranteed housing. Um, but that deposit is typically refundable. And if you decide to go somewhere else, you want to deposit at the new school and withdraw from the other school. Because what yeah. you're doing is you're holding spots. Um, and we're going to talk about in upcoming shows, wait lists and what that means and how frequently schools go to their wait list. And things like double depositing 
Mm-hmm. are, you know, basically you're taking spots away from other people when you do that. Exactly. Um, yep. You don't think about it, but you are. And um, you may be able to afford two deposits, but I would really ask of you, almost beg of you, please don't do it. Um, I just think there is too much opportunity to get yourself ready to make this call that you shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. All right. All right, my so, turn. I got another yeah. one for you. Okay. So Andrea asks, can my daughter still apply for college after graduation? Uh, Andrea, yes, of course. Absolutely. Um, Lots of people go back to school well after they graduate from high school. Uh, Lots of students maybe decide to wait, um, take a year and then apply to college. You can totally do that. The only thing to keep in mind is that once you're out of high school, the burden of the application process can often be more on your shoulders. So things that the high school might have taken care of for you, now they're likely not going to. They'll Mm -hmm. send you your transcripts. Um, They will often be okay with writing you a letter of recommendation, but maybe not. So my advice is always just to kind of line those pieces up if you can in advance, um, even if you're not going to apply in your senior year. Uh, and, and actually, Kathy, the question for you dovetails right with this. Um, mm-hmm. And this comes from Michelle, who says, my son is thinking of taking a gap year, and will this affect the financial aid he's been, he has been offered? So this is a situation where the son has already been accepted to schools. He's, been got, he's received a financial aid package, but he's going to defer his decision, mm-hmm. um, or he's going to defer going to college uh, for a year. Is that going to affect his financial aid? Um, so that's a great question, and it's something you've got to ask the college first, um, because different colleges can have different policies. But essentially, when we think about this, we want to think about the two different types of money he might have been offered. So if it's need-based financial aid, um, for that, I mean, a college can't guarantee he's going to get the same thing unless your financial situation stays exactly the same, because you will have to reapply in the next year, filling out a new FAFSA um, or a profile or whatever you had to fill out to apply for need-based financial aid. So you will have to reapply for need-based financial aid, um, but you might be able to get some kind of assurance from the college about the institutional portion of whatever need-based financial aid you might have gotten. And then when it comes to merit scholarships, um, certainly you want to ask the college, um, will he still... Can he still get this merit scholarship? And a question you might want to ask is, will it be at this fall, you know, fall of 2017 amount, or will it be at the Mm -hmm. fall 2018 amount? Because sometimes colleges will increase the level of their merit scholarships for each incoming class, you know, as Mm -hmm. tuition goes up. And and generally their policy will be, you know, you're given a merit scholarship of $10,000 and it's renewable for four years and it's a renewable $10,000 a year. It doesn't go up when tuition goes up. Um, And then the next year to the next year's incoming class, they might offer $12,000 a year. So you probably want to ask that question. You know, if you increase it for the class of 2022, um, will he get the higher award or will he be stuck at this, this level? Right. Great question. And, and actually, that brings us to the end of our time. Uh, Kathy, as always, I love doing these segments with you. I feel like we got through a lot of stuff here, but not even, 
<laughs> we didn't get close to the list we had in front of us, but we, we did cover a lot. And uh, for everyone who submitted questions, I want to say thank you. Many of you um, submitted questions that actually sparked ideas for segments, so you want to keep listening to the show because we'll do segments in the future related to questions that you're asking. Um, and thanks, Kathy, for being here today. I want to thank Lisa for joining us earlier. Um, next week, Sally's going to be hosting. We're going to be covering another state system, this time Texas. We're going to be talking about education tax breaks. We're going to be talking about uh, giving you some ideas on how to make that final decision by May 1st so that you're not double depositing. None none of these getting in leaders, listeners are going to be double depositing. I I forbid it. Um, Visit our archives. There's so much good stuff in there, specifically relating to a lot of the things you're asking us questions about. Um, There are so many great free ways to interact with us here at College Coach. Our website, getting in getintocollege.com, our blog at blog.getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. You can sign up for free downloads of our show on iTunes. I'm going to put out another call. Please rate the show while you're there. Um, There's another show with the same name that is no longer on the air and is nowhere near as good as ours, and we were first. Um, (laughs) But they have more ratings, so give us more ratings, and then we'll be rising in the ranks. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 